Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. If you would, open your Bibles to Psalms, the 51st chapter. Isn't it wonderful when you have a vacation Bible school that's so good that your attendance goes down the next Sunday? That tells you that families are staying in town for vacation Bible school and they're not leaving on vacation to the week after. And uh, I know that sounds humorous, but, but there's a lot of truth in that. And, and uh, it's wonderful to have a congregation that supports uh, the works that take place within uh, the youth to the point that they plan their vacations around that and that they make sure that those things are the highest priority. And, and what a blessing it is to have a congregation that's filled with folks that are willing to work hard. You know, I'd be amiss if I didn't mention sometime to you the comments that come in almost on a weekly basis from the tape ministry. We never see those guys do their ministry. They do it behind the scenes, and they uh, reproduce those, and they mail them out. But they're doing that every week. Every week there are tapes going out, and we hear uh, from even foreign countries, uh, from folks that appreciate uh, receiving those tapes. And hardly ever does a week go by that we don't hear from either that or from individuals that, that are listening to our services by the way of the Internet. And we appreciate those men that give a lot of their time every week to make that a reality. Because of that, I want to uh, mention to you something that I was asked to mention to you, and then we'll begin with a prayer this evening. Ray Aiken, one of our shut-ins, has been sick for several years. Uh, he now is, is um, very sick. Hospice has been called in this week. And as we were visiting uh, this week, he told me that he would listen in the middle of the night all the time to our worship services, and that's what... Uh, he would spend his time when the rest of the world was sleeping. Uh, he would spend his time, and that kept him connected to this congregation. And he said, you know, people up there don't really know me, or they don't remember me, probably. But he said, I'm a sick fella, and he's suffering with emphysema. And he said, I wish you would mention that to them, and, and please ask them all to pray for me. Let's begin this evening with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, we thank you so much for the avenue of prayer. And Lord, what a rich blessing you give us to not only pray for ourselves, but also to pray for others. And Lord, we're humbled to think that we could do something so powerful for someone else as to reach the Almighty King and the Creator about concerns that are on our heart. Lord, you know the uh, physical condition of Brother Ray Aiken better than we know ourselves. And Lord, it's our prayer that you will look over him and, and strengthen him, if it be your will, and comfort him. Lord, we are thankful uh, for the encouragement that he has been to us. And Lord, we pray that we can return uh, that same kind of encouragement back to him. Lord, we know that there are many others in this congregation that are very ill at this time. We know others that are uh, in grief, others that have suffered uh, various kinds of uh, stresses in their life, and Lord, we pray that you'd be with each one of them. Help us as a congregation to be able uh, to support and to strengthen and to comfort one another as you would have us to, so that we can truly be a family that reflects your character. 
Lord, as we're about to go into a study of Your Word, we pray that You can help us to escape the thoughts of our day-to-day things in this world, and that we can focus wholly upon Your will. Lord, we thank You so much for this opportunity. We thank You so much for Your Word. And it's through Your Son's name we pray. Amen. If you ever look in a library at a book, there are various books that have been put out about the greatest chapters in the Bible. Maybe there are even preachers that have written sermons, and they'll, they'll publish 25 sermons that have to do with the greatest chapters in the Bible. I always hesitate a little bit to call one chapter better than another chapter because if you reverse that, it sounds like maybe you're saying one chapter is not important as another. But nevertheless, when those groupings are made of what individuals believe are the most important chapters in the Bible, Psalms 51 is almost always in that grouping. It is a text where almost the whole chapter concentrates on one thing, and that one thing ties back to a tremendous story that is well known throughout the Old Testament. So it's no wonder that it is a passage that is appreciated but not only because it's one text and it ties back to a story, but because it reveals so much of where we all have been at one time in our life or another. And that is to remember what we once had and want it back again. David wrote Psalms 51 as a plea for the Lord to restore to him the joy of his salvation again. Do you remember when you had little children or maybe you have little children at this time and you remember when you do something that's real fun to them, and, and the moment you get through doing it, they say, do it again. You remember how you can swing them, and before they're, they're even through swinging, that's do it again. You can hold them with their legs wrapped around your waist, and you can dip them down, and on the way back up, they'll be saying, do it again. What is it in your life that brings you so much joy that if it were missing, that would be a natural response? I want that again. Do you believe that salvation is something so awesome? That salvation brings so much joy into your life that if you were missing it, your immediate response would be, I want that again. Please restore that again. For a few Sunday nights, I'd like for us to look at different aspects of Psalms 51. And this evening what we're going to do is look at it from the standpoint of, well, when we have lost our salvation... Where does that place us? Because I believe if we recognize where we are once we've lost our salvation, we would quickly identify the fact that we'd rather be somewhere else. And that point of salvation is far better than what the other side has to offer. And so let's begin by looking at Psalms, the 51st chapter, and let's look at verse 10, 11, and 12. 10, 11, and 12. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from Your presence, and do not take Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation, and uphold me by Your generous Spirit. Do you see there at the beginning of verse 10? He wanted a clean heart. And that clean heart needed to be restored back to him once more. He wanted to renew a steadfast spirit. In other words, what David wanted, it wasn't that, Lord, I want this clean heart again, and, and I expect to lose it in a few months, and maybe I'll want it again later, and I expect to lose it again. 
David viewed his commitment of faith as being something steadfast. He found himself now in a state of unfaithfulness. But as he prayed for that cleansing, he wanted that cleansing to be something that would remain constant in his life. He couldn't bear the thoughts of being separated from the presence of God, and he wanted to be back together again in the presence of God. Now, we are going to study Psalms 51 tonight. But if we could spend just a few minutes not developing in full the story that leads us to here, many of us would know that story well. But just so we're all on the same page, let's drop back to 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, and let's see what was the story that took place that caused David to say this. And like I say, this is going to be just a quick review of this story, and we're going to go back and pull our main points out of Psalms 51. It's interesting that it begins with the word it in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, verse 1. Whatever it is, it happened in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab. Isn't that interesting? Whatever it is was so significant that when the writer writes about it, he simply refers to it as it. And then we read in verse 2, then it happened. And what happened was he was on his roof and he saw Bathsheba bathing. He sent to find out who this woman was in verse 3. And in verse 4 begins with the word then. You see, it happened. And then it's like, let me tell you about when it happened. This is what happened and then... You see, that then should have never taken place. The it should have never taken place. Because when he inquired, who is this woman, he found out that it was one of his mighty men's wives. That's why the word then is there. That should have put an end to it. Oh, it's Uriah's wife. Enough said. I will not look any further. But instead, verse 4, then David sent messengers to come to bring her uh, to him. And they committed adultery. And we see this closing out at the end of verse 27. The last sentence in verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, he did more than just the adultery. He tried to cover up his sin with the deception of calling Uriah home, thinking that he would go back to his house, and then Uriah would be deceived about to whom the child belonged. But he was too committed. Much like his leader David, up until this point in his life, he was too committed. He wouldn't go and do that because the other men that were out in the battle didn't have the same privilege, and he wasn't going to take upon himself a privilege that his fellow soldiers didn't have. And so eventually David sends him back with a letter that really was a letter telling them to put him on the front line. Joab would place him on the front line and in retreat. Definitely, it was a murder that took place by the hands of the enemies because he was set up to be murdered. You see, this thing displeased the Lord. Well, you would think a great man like David would immediately recognize what he did and it would displease him also. Please note this tonight. It isn't until the next chapter that Nathan is sent to him in the 12th chapter. Nathan is to confront him. Friends, I need to learn this from both sides of the fence. If someone loves me enough to confront me about something, I ought to love the fact that they love me enough and I ought to listen because it's very easily easy for us to be involved in something that is tremendously wrong 
and not be aware of it at the time. That's happened to some of the greatest men and women that have ever walked the face of this earth. I'm a fool if I will not listen to the concerns of those that love me and love God. But also I need to learn that if I truly love others, I'm going to have to be strong enough and humble enough to show that love by showing concern for them when they may be in a wrong, involved in a wrong, that they are not aware that they have done so. Isn't it strange that David had to have someone to point out to him the adultery and the murder? How could that be? It's the deceit of Satan. And so it is, he comes and he tells him about the, the man that had a very wealthy um, home, wealth and, the she and many flocks of sheep, and then across the road was this man who was very poor, and he had this little lamb that he raised, holding the lamb, letting it eat out of his own plate, letting it drink out of his own cup. We talk about house dogs. This was a house lamb. This was a house sheep. This sheep grew up as, as one of the family members. And then this man had someone to come in as a stranger, the wealthy man, in to visit him. Instead of going out and taking one of his sheep and slaying it to serve supper that night, he goes across the road to the poor man, the man that's living in poverty. He takes his only sheep and he slays that sheep to serve at his supper. And David is so angry that he immediately calls for the life of that man to be taken and then for the sheep to be paid back fourfold. And then it was Nathan in verse 7 that was bold enough to say, You are the man. And then let's read down in verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. At that point, I suppose he was cut to the quick of the guilt of what he had done. And it's from this situation that we read Psalms, the 51st chapter. It is the prayer that David would pray by writing this psalm, begging God to create in him a new heart, to restore the joy of salvation. Now let's think for just a moment. David, where are you right now? And he says, I'm in sin against the Lord right now. David, what do you want? He says, I remember what it was to have a clean heart. I remember what it was to have the presence of God. I remember what it was to have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within. Those are the things I want again. I miss that. I don't like where I find myself. Restore to me the joy of that salvation. Where was he though? Somebody says, well, he was in sin. That's easy. But really, there's more to it than that, at least more that we ought to understand. Let's go back and read the first couple of verses and notice how several things are listed here, not just sin by itself, but more details. Let's look at Psalms 51. Psalms 51, let's read verse 1 and 2. Having mercy, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. You see, that's the only hope for any of us, mercy. And we don't obtain mercy because we deserve it. We only obtain it because of God's loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies. Notice these words. Blot out, number one, my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my, number two, iniquities. And cleanse me from my sin, number three. Isn't it interesting that when David talked about what he had done against God... He quickly identified and said, I have transgressed against God. I've committed iniquity against God. I have sinned against God. If you had to get out a piece of paper right now and write down a brief definition for each one of those, could you? 
Let's spend a little time tonight understanding what it is when we sin and see how it affects us, how it affects God. And I believe that if we better understand that in this lesson, we can have a greater appreciation for salvation to see what we escape. And in other lessons, we'll look at other aspects of the joy of salvation. Let's think about this as he talks about transgression. Look with me, if you will, to 2 John, the ninth chapter. 2 John, I'm sorry, 2 John, the ninth verse. 2 John, the ninth verse. It'd be kind of like when I told you a few weeks ago on a Sunday night to go to Ecclesiastes, the 13th chapter. Um, that's just to see if you're awake. Or maybe to prove to you I'm not perfect. <laughs> like you need proof. All right. Look at verse 9. Whoever transgresses, there's the word, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. The word transgress literally means to go beyond. It is the concept of rebellion. When we see someone draw a line and then someone says, do not cross that line, not only to transgress is to go beyond that line, but it is to rebel against the authority that says do not go across that line. So if you'll notice on your screen, there is a box there that inside that box says the doctrine of Christ, just as we, as we have read in 2 John, the ninth verse there. Now, as you'll notice, as any box would have, there are outer boundaries in that box. If you'll think about anything that is within those boundaries, those things are within the will of God. In other words, those are the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so an individual can move around within the teachings of Jesus Christ, but then we come to that boundary. And we look at that boundary. And just like you tell a four-year-old, don't ride your tricycle beyond this mark here because we don't want you playing in the street. That would be dangerous. And that four-year-old rides up there, and they look at that mark, and they look back at you, and they look at that mark, and they take off riding. Now, what has that child done at that point? That child has transgressed the command. But what have they done to you? They have rebelled against your authority. Now, it's of a sad interest. How much has been said in the last year or so among some, even within our brotherhood, that the Bible is just a storybook and that God would be ashamed if we talked about commandments or law that He has given us, but what He wants us to see is that there's a story of God's love and there's a story of redemption and God wants us to see the story and not really pay attention to commands. I sat around a table where an individual said, those things in 1 Timothy 3, God would be ashamed of us if we called those qualifications. Those aren't qualifications of what a man ought to be to be an elder or a deacon. That's just a general story of what God says an individual ought to be, but he doesn't have to do those things. Now, friends, the text says a man must. 
Now the man himself can say it's a story and God doesn't care, but God put the word must in there. But even the text that we're studying tonight, and John the 14th chapter and verse 15, that the love of God is keeping His commandments. In 1 John 5 and verse 3, we see that to love God is to keep His commandments, and you can't separate those things. Please get this. I'm not trying to bash or, or to talk negative about the brotherhood. I'm really not, but I'm wanting to plant a seed in your mind here. Any time individuals try to place commandments on one side and love of God on the other and try to make us be in a situation to have to choose, they are the ones that's wrong. God brings together commandments and love in the same thing. And He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It can't get any more simple than that. And so we look at this text here in 2 John in verse 9. And He says, if you abide in me, you have both me and the Father. He says, but if you transgress me, my doctrine, my teachings, you don't have me or the Father. So what does it mean to transgress? Back in the story of David, David went to the line there. He was being tempted. He saw Bathsheba. He found out that she was another man's wife, and he crossed over the line and rebelled against God. When he recognizes finally what he did, the first thing that he admitted in this chapter is, Lord, I've transgressed against you. Let's make sure that God would never describe us as rebellious people against His authority. But now we also see back in our text, 51st chapter, now going into verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly of my iniquities. What is iniquity? Be turning, if you will, to 2 Peter, the second chapter. 2 Peter, the second chapter. Iniquity is that which is perverse. Iniquity is that which is polluted. Imagine with me, if you will, an individual that uh, is looking at a small lake, very small lake, and this lake is polluted beyond any little body of water you have ever seen, more than you can imagine. There's not just things floating on top, there's things floating all down in the water. It's the yuckiest colors, it's got the strangest growths growing on it and under it. And you look at that yucky body of water, and immediately somebody says, that's pollution. I've never seen anything polluted like that. And the next guy says, let's jump in. And everybody else, absolutely not. Wouldn't dream of that. Get in something that is that polluted? And this fellow jumps in. He stays in. As a matter of fact, he comes back the next day. And he comes back the next day. And before long... Large sores are growing on his body. He's growing weaker because it's very unhealthy to be in that polluted water. And before long, he's having to just hold himself on a float because he's about to die in that water. But every day, he's still saying to the others, Come on in. This is the best thing. Come on in. Come on in. You know what David realized? David realized that what he had done was a, a pollution to his spiritual life. 
He realized that he'd filled his life with things that literally destroy life. And so he finds himself in that situation, and he immediately says, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. In other words, he's saying, I remember what it was one time to not be in this mess of pollution, of sin, and I want to be restored back. Peter uses the same kind of teaching here. And when we look in 2 Peter, the second chapter, let's begin reading at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions, see there's the word, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, how'd they escape it? Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there's a problem here. They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of the righteous than having known it to turn from the holy commandment. See how the emphasis is placed on commandments? They've turned from the holy commandments delivered to them, but it has happened to them. According to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. He gives us two things here. The second one is simply the identification of filth. Here we have the pig that's washed clean. And he says, look, that pig was nasty. That pig was polluted, if you will. And an individual took that pig and washed that pig so clean I've mentioned to you before, I, I showed hogs in high school. I can relate to this verse. You get those white pigs, and you get them so clean, and sprinkle baby powder on them, and oh, they're beautiful. You get black pigs and clean them up, and, and you put baby oil on them. They just shine. You get, you get that pig so clean, the last thing you want to do, you don't want him to lay down anywhere. But especially you don't want him to lay down in the mud. And so here he gives the example. He says, look, this pig went from dirty to clean, and went right back to being polluted again in that mud. But then, he not only identifies that iniquity is the pollution, but he also identifies what it is to God. This is very important. I would guess that at least 90% of us here, we see a dog vomit, we turn our heads. It's repulsive. God does not hold back here, but states it very clear and very plain. He views the pollution of sin as repulsive. It's not just the dog vomiting, but the dog going back and eating that which it has vomited. David realized that what he had done was pollution to his soul. He realized, in fact, that it was dirty, that it was sin, that it was also disgusting to God. And as he realized how disgusting it was to God, he wanted to be an individual that brought peace in his life and a love and a glory to God. No wonder he cries out, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. But then we see that he uses the word sin. Go with me, if you will, to James, the first chapter. You see there he said, Cleanse me from my sin. Now usually we use this word most often, I would suppose. 
Uh, we speak of transgressions, we speak of iniquities, but most often we place all of that under a larger, broader term, and that term being sin. Sin is a word by definition that, that literally means ruin. In other words, uh, we look at something that looks delicious to eat, and several weeks later we say, that's ruined. Uh, we think about sin. David, where does that leave you? You found yourself in sin. In other words, he's saying, I found myself ruined. Well, what does he need? Notice this word. He has asked several times in this chapter, restore me. When we take an old vehicle, in present condition, it might be ruined. In other words, it's not ready to be driven. It's not ready to, for the eye to appreciate it. But yet, when much labor is placed into restoring that vehicle, then it is ready not only to operate, but even to be appreciated. When we think about a, a joint where a bone is out of joint, to restore that bone back into joint is to take when it is out of joint in the sense it is ruined. It cannot function as it should. But to restore it back is to place it back into the function, back to where it belongs. James gives us some of the greatest insight of how sin moves from temptation to actually becoming sin, using the word for ruin. Read with me, if you will, James, the first chapter. We're going to begin reading in verse 13. As we read this, to best understand this passage, we have to think about uh, the laws of reproduction. Uh, two come together, conceive, and another is born. So as we read this, think about what, what are the two things that come together, what is conceived, and that which is conceived, what does it grow up into being? And that's how this passage is written. James, the first chapter, beginning verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted with God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire, that's one, and enticed. You see, so we have an individual here that has a desire to do something that is wrong. Then we have the opportunity to do that which is wrong. Enticement. Sometimes we would call this temptation. So in other words, the temptation is there. There's an there's a arena available for that sin to be committed. There is a person looking into that arena saying, I would like to commit that sin. A willing, along with the temptation... When these two come together, what takes place next? Verse 15, Then, when desire has conceived, in other words, desire has brought itself together with that temptation, it gives birth to sin. It gives birth to ruin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so at first we say, well, well sin, that's bad enough. What happens if the person never repents of their sin? There's going to be spiritual death for that person. As long as there's life, there's opportunity to repent. There's opportunity to have spiritual life again. But to die in that sin is total ruin. So as we consider this passage, it brings interest to us. Going back now to Psalms 51, let's just kind of tie this together and extend the invitation here. It's interesting what he says about each one of these. 
We will use what he says about each one to just give a, give a quick review. We're back now in Psalms 51, and we're going to read the last part of verse 1 again. See the last part where he says about transgression? What did he say? Blot out my transgression. The line was there. David crossed it. He rebelled. He violated the law of God. And so now he's praying to God, and he's asking, God, will you erase that? Lord, I colored outside the lines. And you're the only one that can give me a new sheet of paper. Lord, can you just blot it out? Make it so I'm not guilty of that anymore. Notice the next thing he asked for about iniquity. Remember iniquity was that pollution? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Has there ever been a time in your life where you were so dirty, so yucky, the one thing you would have said at least at that moment that you want more than anything is you want a shower? Remember those times? David found himself there spiritually. Lord, I've, I've polluted myself. Please wash me, and not just a little bit. He wasn't wanting to repent just a little bit. He wasn't wanting just a little bit of forgiveness. Wash me thoroughly. And then finally, look what he says about cleanse me from my sin. Total ruin. Lord, you're the only one that can clean it up and make it good again. Sure, David had to do his part as if we today also had to do our part. But that part is only offered to us because of God's mercy and His grace and that tender kindness that extends down to us. Now we're going to show a slide for just a moment here that when you look at this, you're going to think this is repulsive. And uh, you don't have to look at it long. It won't be on the screen very long. But when you glance at this, there's something that just strikes me the wrong way about that. We see cleansing in that picture. But we also see something that's very deadly in that picture. Tonight, I want to ask you, are you trying to scrub away at some sin in your life and just clean up the sin? Are you striving to have God's forgiveness and turn away from the sin? We've studied some details in Psalms 51 tonight. But here's what I need to grasp as I leave. David had sinned against God, and he was ready to make an about-face and turn wholly and fully back to God because he wanted the joy of his salvation restored. Tonight, are there little secret sins that you've been hanging on to and, and you've tried to figure out some way to cover those sins up, to cleanse those sins, to justify them in your mind? It's not really going to hurt. Would you repent of those tonight and make that right with your God? And Maybe there's something of a public nature. Would you repent of it and confess it to others and let's pray forgiveness? Maybe you've never been baptized into Christ. And you've never experienced the joy of salvation. It's awesome. It's awesome to be saved. It's awesome to lay your head on the pillow at night and know that God has forgiven. 
You're not carrying the guilt of transgressions, of iniquities and sin. If we can help in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.